1: Today, we're going to talk about the Republican Party's about face on mail voting and how their search for who's responsible is going. And I interview Senator Tammy Baldwin to discuss the historic passage of the Respect for Marriage Act, what it means for an openly gay senator to see it pass, and how Republican Ron Johnson's win in her state will impact her own upcoming race in 2024. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're listening to No Lie. So there's this meme that uh, if you spend anything close to the ungodly amount of time online that I do... You've seen where there's a guy dressed as a hot dog saying, we're all trying to find the guy who did this. We are living through the real life version of that right now with a bunch of conservatives now coming forward and lamenting the fact that Republicans lost this last midterm election cycle because they failed to embrace mail-in voting and early voting. And the argument is basically that Democrats have weeks of getting people out to the polls, whereas Republicans are banking on like 12 hours in one single day. And that's very clearly the right argument that they've been making. Like, this isn't a difficult concept here, and it's been a dumb tactic from the start. But here is the amazing part. Listen to Sean Hannity try to start working through how they got here.
0: Uh, I think Republicans have been unwilling, for whatever reason, reluctant, resistant, to voting early and voting by mail. Do they have to get over that reluctance, that resistance?
2: Sure, look, I mean, you, you have to play the game by the rules that are existing. Uh, that means, for, for example, if you want Generation Z voters, you've got to be on TikTok, even if, in fact,
1: in the long run, we may abolish TikTok as a Chinese communist device. And that was Newt Gingrich going off on some stupid tangent about TikTok. But I'm not sure you could find a less self aware postmortem than Fox's Sean Hannity saying, for whatever reason, Republicans have been unwilling to vote by mail. Like, I can think of um, one reason, and it's the guy who that network has predicated its entire identity on. Like, my God, just say Trump. It's Trump. Trump is the reason. Trump spent months demonizing mail-in voting and then installed Louis DeJoy to sabotage the post office, and then every Fox host and anchor took their cues from him and also demonized mail-in voting. Here's a fun little experiment. This is Trump ally Maria Bartiromo just a few days ago.
3: Yeah, you make a good point about the early voting. And that's what Kevin McCarthy said to me yesterday. Republicans need to find a way to trust the mail-in ballots and mail-in voting um, so that it can start before game day, if you will.
1: And here's Maria Bartiromo back in October of 2020.
3: Yep. Yeah. More than 2,000 L.A. County ballots printed, mailed without presidential uh, uh, election, without the presidential right. race on the ballots. To uh, my the name ballots the ballot. are being thrown in the trash. That's ballots right. are being sent to dead people. I have another story every day on this situation. What are you going to do about it, Mr. President? If they cheated in 2016, they're going to cheat again. How are you going to stop this and ensure that you have the wherewithal to fight back if it's all ballot uh, lies.
1: So yeah, one of life's great mysteries, how Maria's audience was manipulated into believing the things that they heard right from Maria's mouth. Here's another. This is Fox and Friends just a few days ago. I, I'm
2: interested to see whether the extent to which Republicans have learned lessons of the past and decided to really push early voting. They should. They, they have to, because yeah. a lesson of the last couple cycles is Democrats largely using COVID emergency measures know how to bank votes legally. They go at low propensity voters time and time again. And then we count, Republicans count on election day to turn people out, which is, has a lot more variables for failure.
1: And this is Fox and Friends back in July of 2020.
2: He held up multiple reports in, in the so-called mainstream media uh, with the problems of mail-in ballots. 1,800 Floridians whose uh, their mail-in ballot came after the deadline. Nevada, 6,700 ballots rejected because it didn't have signatures. Pennsylvania's primary last month, late ballots uh, considered disqualified. I mean, in, in Wisconsin's primary, this is in April, uh, 23,000 ballots were thrown out because they missed at least one line in the form that was the margin of victory for Donald Trump in 2016. So if you're concerned about election integrity, you you can see the train coming down the tracks of the problems we will have if there are pushed mail-in ballots. And that's the point he's trying to make. Well, a lot of Americans don't trust the US postal system because they've had budget cuts, they've had so many problems in the past past you know decade or whatever or however long it's been. And Everyone knows if you go in person to vote, you know your vote is counted. Correct. But if you try to mail something in, there's a big chance that it's not going to get to the folks who are counting these ballots. If you can get to Target, if you can get to Home Depot, if you've been doing your food
1: shopping, don't tell me you're too concerned about your health to go to vote. And so now comes the part where all of these full grown adults in the GOP walk around pretending that they don't know how it could have possibly gotten to this point. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get stories from The New York Times just gobbling up those talking points with some op-ed titled uh, Republicans Rack Their Brains to Figure Out How Their Voters Abandoned Mail in Voting. And all of this is just the daily reminder that these people within the Republican Party, and I'm including their media personalities like Hannity and Maria Bartiromo and the Fox and Friends hosts, are all just so deathly afraid of Donald Trump. Which, by the way, makes all of these stories granting Ron DeSantis his role as the new leader of the Republican Party so ridiculous, like at least at this point, because everyone's just talking about how Trump's dead. But A, no one's really even thrown a punch, much less killed him. And B, they're all still afraid of him. If they weren't, they'd admit the obvious and say, man, this guy really fucked us. He spent the whole year peppering the entire party with threats about how early ballots and mail ballots wouldn't count to the point where we have a massive built in disadvantage now. And the irony in all of this is that the only reason he did it was because he needed an excuse to be able to point to to justify his loss. Like he knew he would lose, but mail ballots were what he landed on as a scapegoat. He needed to point to those as the culprit. And so because he wanted to overturn the election results, he basically sacrificed the entire weeks long period prior to the election uh, when Republicans could have been banking votes, all because he was looking out for himself and his efforts to cry foul, which is just so perfectly prototypical. Donald Trump screwed his own party over for the foreseeable future by sowing permanent distrust in early voting because he was looking to help himself in an election that he knew he would lose. Just peak predictability on that one. So will anything change? Probably not, for that exact reason I laid out. So long as Trump is the head of that party, he will continue to pretend that mail voting is fraudulent because he has to. That's part of the story that he's predicated his entire identity on. He has no choice but to keep pretending that mail voting is bad. And no one else is really going to push back because... A, they were pushing that same bullshit as he was, and B, they're too afraid of Trump to really mount anything of an effective opposition to him. And so they'll just stay in that cycle because it is a cult of personality. And uh, they didn't bother to think about how joining a cult might not be too helpful when the cult leader decides to suggest drinking the cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. So, you know, I'm sure that we'll hear these tepid little efforts by Maria Bartiromo and Sean Hannity to revise their strategy. But the fact is that All they've done thus far is train their audiences to listen to Trump. And Trump isn't going to tell these people to start voting early. So these people aren't going to start voting early, which is not to say that they can't win because, you know, look at the Ohio Senate race, look at Florida, look at New York even. But it is clear now that they're operating from a weaker position, all thanks to one guy's very obvious and self-serving scam. And it really does show the extent to which hitching your wagon to Donald Trump is just a never-ending kick in the balls.
0: the way car buying should be.
1: Today we have the U.S. Senator from Wisconsin, Tammy Baldwin. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's a delight to join you. Thanks for having me. Now, you were a lead sponsor for the Respect for Marriage Act. It was passed by the Senate and the House and it'll be signed into law by President Biden, possibly by the time people are watching or listening to this. Um, so congratulations in advance for getting it done.
3: Thank you. It was such a joy to see uh, this both history making, but also difference making legislation, uh, advance.
1: You made history as the first openly gay Senator to be elected in 2012. Um, what does it mean for you to see a bill like this, which, which doesn't have everything, but still, you know, protect same sex marriage to the extent that it can at the federal level get passed and signed into law?
3: Well, it, it's a part of the arc of progress. And, uh, what is, um, when I look back over uh, many, many years in um, public office and public service, I think about how much has changed since the mid-1980s when I first became involved. And even uh, between my being sworn into the United States Senate in 2013 as uh, uh, the first openly gay member of the U.S. Senate in history to uh, a few years after that when marriage equality became the law of the land. But I have to remind myself that it was not the law of the land when I first uh, joined the United States Senate. And uh, it was unimaginable at that point in time that we could get um, the votes together necessary to legislatively protect um, same-sex marriage rights. We won them in court, but uh, when they became under threat because of the uh, recent decision in the Dobbs case, um, a lot of people didn't think we could legislatively protect those rights. And indeed, we've shown we can.
1: On exactly that point, when you did get elected in 2012, I believe that DOMA was still the law of the land until 2013. uh, So it might have just uh, you might have just just, you know, butted up against uh, against that happening. But
3: Great point, because the Defense of Marriage Act was enacted in 1996 at a time when everybody was, I I think, fearful or saying the sky is falling, there might be a state that decides to go forward and recognize same-sex marriages. So the Defense of Marriage Act was this sort of uh, panicked um, response at the federal level saying, well, at least the federal government won't have to recognize um, any marriage other than a traditional marriage between a man and a woman. And Today, uh, now that we have seen the Respect for Marriage Act pass both houses and, um, you know, that is the death of the Defense of Marriage Act because it is explicitly repealed by the Respect for Marriage Act. It's kind of, you know, right now it's still on the books, even though the Windsor case um, uh, made part of it, you know, declared part of it unconstitutional. It's still on the federal statutes. And so with the respect for Marriage Act, we are finally rid of that. Um, I I ran into my former colleague in the House, Barney Frank, during uh, the celebration of the passage. And he said, I was in the House during the birth of the Defense of Marriage Act. But this celebration of the funeral of the Defense of Marriage Act is a celebration to behold. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, that's a great point, point. and that's that's been your career. I mean, you got there right at that birth, and now this week, now you're here for uh, for the first funeral. So, um, with that said, like, what was it like being in the Senate as again the first openly gay senator? Given that that body is not exactly known for its tolerant views, I'm talking about when you were first uh, first elected in 2012, and you first took your seat in 2013. Like, was there any bigotry or anything that you encountered personally while you were in the Senate? You know, I. I
3: not um, that I would um, have observed or, or can uh, recall at this point, but remember that I first was elected to public office at the local and then state level in the 80s and then the 90s. So I've seen some, uh, some pretty uh, wild things. I remember a fellow member of the state assembly swearing that she didn't have any gay people in her district. Like they must all live in mine or something, you know. And and, <laughs> right. and I think perhaps to your question, what I have seen change, especially with marriage equality and so many um, same-sex couples being visible uh, in, you know, not only celebrating their marriages, but out as families, there are hardly any colleagues that, no matter what party, Democrat or Republican, that don't know a gay couple uh, that don't have a friend or a loved one or a staff member who's in a same sex marriage, And that begins to change everything. And I, I'd love to hope and think that my presence as a colleague, uh, their colleague in the United States Senate was helpful in their making um, those moves and, and, um, and considering uh, uh, their views. But it also has been so bolstered by the visibility of gay Americans and the fact that that has also brought a sea change in American opinion. Over seventy percent of Americans believe that same-sex marriages deserve the same respect as opposite sex marriages.
1: yeah one image I think that that was really striking to a lot of people was, uh, on the day that the House passed uh, this bill, there was a Republican from Missouri, Vicki Hartzler, uh, who um, pretty much stood up and, and got herself to the point of tears, practically begging her colleagues to vote against this bill. Um, I, I guess what was your reaction to seeing that?
3: You know, there are uh, wrought emotions, and some of them, you know, don't stand up. Uh, I know that uh, there were. People, I think, with every major piece of civil rights legislation, issuing uh, statements that would suggest that the sky was going to indeed fall. And we heard, even with this legislation, it, the Respect for Marriage Act, that you know some some sort of huge conflict with the religious liberties that we enjoy here in America. Nothing could be further from the truth, but. One of the ways I was able to help earn the support of 12 Republican senators in the United States Senate to support this bill and get it through uh, a Senate filibuster was by listening and adding some clarification language that makes it super clear. That there is no conflict between the Respect for Marriage Act, repealing the Defense of Marriage Act, and religious liberties. There's just no conflict here. And we were able to clarify that and uh, move forward.
1: Yeah. And what I hope that people can recognize at some point, although uh, it's, it's, you know, I, I feel like we would already have been there by this point, is that. People gaining rights doesn't deprive other people of their own rights that they've already gotten. It just allows other people to enjoy equal rights. But, um, you know, I think something that we've learned is that that seems like a, like too, too complex of a topic for some people to, to comprehend.
3: I was going to say, the other thing that made this measure so necessary was that I think for the first time in most people's lives, we saw earlier this year the Supreme Court take away freedoms and rights and liberties. Yeah. Now, is this the... Only time the Supreme Court has ever gone back. I mean, there, there may be some other small examples, but half of America became second class citizens. And I think that opened people's minds to the fact that an activist court could also revisit uh, the Obergefell uh, quality decision, could uh, go back and review uh, uh, cases around access to contraception. And, um, and and many other cases. And so that's what necessitated the Respect for Marriage Act is a, a legitimate fear that an activist Supreme Court like the one we have right now could reverse course on these hard-fought uh, and hard-won battles.
1: Now, can you explain a little bit about why the Respect for Marriage Act was structured the way that it was structured? Because the bill doesn't codify same-sex marriage but it does ensure federal recognition of marriages that are already established.
3: Federal and state recognition of marriages that are already established. So here's, um, and I want to give an analogy in this because we forget oftentimes to underscore that the Respect for Marriage Act also protects interracial marriages. That jurisprudence is much older. In 1967, the United States Supreme Court said that Bans on interracial marriage were unconstitutional. At the time that case was decided, 16 states still had laws on their books banning interracial marriage. It took until the year 2000 for the last state in the United States of America to repeal their statute banning interracial marriage. Now, it didn't matter because Loving versus Virginia had decided that those 16 statutes um, and and even the one that wasn't repealed until 2000 were unconstitutional, so they couldn't be enforced. But look at where we are today. We have 35 states that have on the books either constitutional bans on same sex marriage or statutory bans, or both in some cases. Wisconsin has a constitutional ban that passed. in 2006. So if the court were to strike down marriage equality in the Obergefell decision, there would be 35 states that would have already statutes on the books. And that's what we needed to contend with to make sure that if you were legally married and in a state that bans same sex marriage, that the state you live in would be forced to recognize your marriage if it was legally entered into, in a jurisdiction where it was legal. So it's sort of when and where. And um, it would be really, really difficult to structure a law at the state level that, uh, I'm sorry, at the federal level to to actually codify a called where you're actually trying to overturn 35 state laws or 35 constitutional, you know what I mean? That, yeah you don't have that reach from the federal level. So we still have work to do even with the Respect for Marriage Act passed. It's worthwhile doing that sort of housekeeping at the state level. Let's go back to those states that passed laws banning same-sex marriage and repeal them. Uh, that would be extra insurance, but, uh, but those, those laws are generally still all on the books.
0: Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop down menu that follows.
1: Is there a way to codify same sex marriage at the federal level, like an actual codification of same sex marriage at the federal level? Or is the reason that that law wouldn't work is because given the makeup of this court, it would get struck down anyway?
3: Well, just think about the fact that marriage is defined and, um, regulated at the state level. And in fact, every state does not have identical marriage laws, but they're largely similar. You can't go to a federal clerk and get a marriage license. You go to your county clerk in most jurisdictions to get your marriage license. Yeah, And um, it's entered into by, uh, you know, the, the presiding officer is either a, a, a state official, a judge, or uh, a religious person. And divorce. You file for your divorce at the state court, not federal court. So if if you're, I mean, could we set up a federal marriage statute um, and start having, well, I have a federal marriage, you have a state marriage. I mean, yeah. it, it would be creating something anew. And that's why the Loving versus Virginia interracial marriage didn't say, you know, we're going to create a federal right to marry so that we can get around the, the states um, that ban interracial marriage. That's what's difficult about it. I mean, it wouldn't be impossible. I can tell you it wouldn't pass because the, building this uh, political support for creating a whole new regulatory authority that doesn't currently exist would be quite complicated.
1: Well, what's your message to a young person who may want to get married in the next few years, but who lives in a state where there is hostility to, to same-sex marriage uh, and it might not survive the next legislative session? What would be your, mer- what, your message to those, to those people?
3: First of all, thank goodness Obergefell has not been overturned. This Respect for Marriage Act was passed sort of as an insurance policy because we have now this activist court that has made it clear that they're going to review past precedent like overturning Roe versus Wade. So so again, um to that young person, go for it uh, and know that right now you can do so in any state in the United States of America. But I would also say that if you care about these fundamental rights, that um, also be active and look and see whether your state is one that has uh, an old law on the books banning uh, same-sex marriage. And maybe uh, talk about how You can be a part of a movement to make the laws reflect the the reality that we want to always see moving forward, but go for it. And even if that dark day came when Obergefell might be overturned by an activist court like our Supreme Court right now, then it still means that you can go to a state where it is um, recognized and be married. It's sadly, it's kind of like what many um, women are forced to do right now because of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Wisconsin has an 1849 uh, era criminal abortion ban. So people in need of uh, abortion care in Wisconsin have to travel to Illinois or Minnesota or Michigan um, in order to seek the care. I want to see us do everything we can to um, restore uh the rights we've just lost but i hope we're never in a position where people seeking to get married to the person they love have to move to another state but frankly before oberger felt that was the way things were for a while yeah. um my closest friends were married in canada because they recognized same sex marriage before the united states did any state in the united states so we want to keep we want to keep moving in the direction of progress and freedoms.
1: And your state, Wisconsin, does have, uh, you know, obviously there is a Democratic governor there um, and the the state legislature is is so gerrymandered, but hopefully with that race coming up for the state Supreme Court in April, we'll finally have the opportunity to flip that Supreme Court and then restore some fair maps to the state of Wisconsin and uh, and hopefully see some draconian laws like that one um, get repealed. But with that said, you know, we just had a, a really, successful midterm cycle, Wisconsin included, um, except for the Senate race in Wisconsin, where Ron Johnson uh, will somehow continue to serve. So what is your take on the Ron Johnson Mandela Barnes race and how can we fix it moving forward to ensure that other senators, yourself included uh, in in your next uh, in in your upcoming reelection, are meeting the same targets that other statewide winners in Wisconsin have met?
3: I'm a U.S. senator, I also look at the the map uh, nationally. And um, we're celebrating the fact that next Congress, we will have 51 Democratic senators in a year that was supposed to be uh, the worst headwinds imaginable for Democrats. And um, I think the overarching Lesson was a rejection of extremism in most uh, governors and Senate races. Extremism meaning, you know, those who celebrated the overturning of Roe versus Wade, those who deny that Joe Biden won the 2020 election, those who embrace conspiracies around vaccinations and COVID, et cetera, that by and large that was rejected. In the Wisconsin Senate race, you know, an exception to that generalization, Mandela Barnes fought that race to a tie. It was um, it, it was incredible. I I was so honored to uh, campaign with him, and um, that's reflective of a state that is pretty pretty 50. Yeah, and <laughs> um, uh, you know, he won his lieutenant governor's race four years prior with less than a percentage. Uh, point. And uh, this was close also. So I think the overarching message is that we uh, rejected extremism, but there were some exceptions to the rule. And, um, and we've got to, as we always do in a democracy, which is not a spectator sport, we brush ourselves off and we get ready to fight again.
1: Yeah, and we will. But in the meantime, we'll celebrate this win that you had uh, played a major role in. So congratulations again, Senator Tammy Baldwin. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Senator Baldwin. That's it for this episode. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen, produced by Sam Graber, music by Wellesley, interviews captured and edited for YouTube and Facebook by Nicholas Nicotera, and recorded in Los Angeles, California. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast app. Feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review. And check out bryantylercohen.com for links to all of my other channels.